morning. Good morning to our viewers online as well. We're continuing our message series, The Spirit and the Mission of the Church, today. For much of the last 1,500 years, uh, the Christian church has held a position of power and status within our society. Uh, the church strongly influenced society and culture, so much so that the term used to describe culture over this period is Christendom, uh, which literally means a Christian world. Since the culture was so heavily influenced by the church, uh, one of the results was that people learned the language, they learned the behavior of Christianity simply by growing up in the West. Uh, the general public understood the language, the symbols, uh, and the major teachings of Scripture, like uh, love thy neighbor as thyself, or whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, um, and not for men, right? So most people agreed on matters of morality. They agreed on character, work ethic, how we should treat one another. The great flaw of Christendom, though, uh, was that Christian living was not dependent on Christian being. In other words, Christendom promoted a lifestyle, promoted the lifestyle of Christianity um, that was often separated from a true encounter with Jesus, an accurate understanding of the gospel, and, exper and an experience of the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. So the goal of society was not necessarily to produce Christians, but to produce Christianized people. But without a true relationship with Jesus, uh, without a life of dependence on the Holy Spirit, the Christianized life often became just like a moral framework for living a decent, socially acceptable life, right? A works-based Christianity, a faith without faith and without intimacy, intimacy with God, intimacy with other believers, um, and definitely without power, the power to actually transform lives. I would argue that a Christianized society practicing the form of Christianity but lacking the relationship and the power is actually a deformed version of it, something that looks like the real thing but is not. It's become obvious that here in the U.S., our society has increasingly moved away from being a Christianized society. Um, the culture has gradually assumed values and worldviews that are not necessarily Christian. And in most cases, the church has lost its influence in the greater society. But that may not be a bad thing. Scripture presents a radically different and more vibrant view of the church than this Christianized life and this Christianized society um, that has the form of Christianity but lacks its power. A church where you go once a week, hear some good principles to live by, where you sing some songs, you enjoy fellowship by potlucking together, 
Um, Jesus' view of the church was radically different. Jesus describes the church as actively raiding the gates of hell. He describes the church as having the keys of the kingdom of God. The church is the place where people get healed, where people experience profound transformation, uh, where people truly experience that resurrection power I was talking about last weekend. And it's the place where God's army gets equipped to do damage to the kingdom of darkness. Right? The church is where the action is. Now, when I say church, I mean all of us. I mean the people. I'm not talking about the building. Uh, and I'm not talking about just the pastors. It's actually common these days to see pastor-centered churches produce a congregation that behaves more like an audience than a spirit-filled community that's fulfilling Christ's mission here on the earth. God has a much richer vision for the life of the church than we imagined. Um, And it's as the church lives out the practices and walks out the mission that we see in the book of Acts Um, that we begin to see what it's supposed to look like. All right, so that's my intro. That hopefully sets the stage for what we're going to cover today. Um, The passage we're talking about today marks the very beginning of the disciples' life without Jesus physically with them. They'd spent the last three years of their life with Jesus, and now he was gone. He ascended into heaven. Um. We'll read, read the first few verses of the scripture today. Acts 1, 12 through 15. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of half a mile. When they arrived, they went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. Here are the names of those who were present. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all met together and were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. During this time, when about 120 believers were together in one place, Peter stood up and addressed them. So what's about to unfold in the life of of these disciples uh, reminds me of a story. I'll share a story with you. So there was a Chinese farmer... Um, who had cataracts removed by a Christian missionary who was working there in China as a medical doctor. After the farmer recovered, he made his way from the Christian compound back into the inner part of his country. A few days later, the doctor looked out of his office window and he saw that farmer again. The farmer was holding a long rope and behind him, Um, Holding on to the rope were several blind Chinese people whom the farmer had told about his successful operation. So they all knew that the farmer had been essentially blind, but now he could see. And the farmer had told these people about the doctor who had cured him. Naturally, all these blind people wanted to meet this doctor, 
And of course, the cured man couldn't explain like the physiology of the eye or the technique of the operation. He just told the others that he'd been blind, the doctor operated on him, and now he could see. That was all they needed to hear, so they wanted to go see this doctor. So like that, the disciples of Jesus, um, as disciples of Jesus, we don't need to be a theologian. We don't need to be a Bible scholar in order to share our faith. Um, we don't need to be able to explain like all the ins and outs of the gospel and like these fancy phrases like substitutionary atonement, right? And, and we don't need to be, be able to answer every question that people throw at us. We don't even need to be a perfect example of a clean Christian like model, right? We simply need to be authentic witnesses to the fact that we were once blind and now we can see. Here's who I was before I met Jesus. Here's who I am now. Here is how he changed my life. It's as simple as that. And this is exactly what the early church uh, was setting about to do in today's scripture. Um, as we enter back into the story, we see they're returning to Jerusalem uh, to begin the work that Christ had given them to do. So we don't know if this, this upper room is the same upper room um, where they had the Last Supper, but we do know that it was large enough to host a very large group. Right? In this case, 120 people. So it's uncertain whether they were, they were living, like all staying here 24-7, or if they were just like gathering during the day. Um, but it was a large enough room that it could host all of these people, 120 of them. So they all remained together, and they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. Um, this is the very first of the meetings of the Church of Jesus Christ happening in this room in Jerusalem. And what were they doing? Verse 14 says, they all met together and were constantly united in prayer. So in the NASB translation, it says, they were continually devoting themselves with one mind to prayer. Bible scholar Daryl Bach, in his commentary on the book of Acts, um, says the following. The gathered community is of one mind as it prays. Ten of the eleven New Testament occurrences of this term appear in Acts. The word refers to a group acting as one, with one accord in the King James, ESV, and RSV translations, with one mind in NASB and NET translations, met together continually in the New Living Translation, and then continually united in HCSB translation. He says, often it describes Jews or others acting in protest against something. In other cases, it describes the disciples who are in accord about something. As the examples concerning the disciples show, it is a term that points to the fundamental unity within the church. Here the group is operating in obedience, waiting for the Spirit, and praying in preparation as they wait. The nascent church, the church uh, that's just coming into, into being, into existence, is showing some of its most fundamental characteristics. Gathered, seeking the Lord's will with one mind in prayer, 
and assembled to carry out God's mission. So it's very easy for us as a church to not be united, to not be of one mind. Um, Every person in the church can have their own passionate opinions about the church, about the direction that the church should take. I'm sure it was invigorating uh, to have 120 people gathered together waiting for the power, right, for the mission to come, and all 120 of them are described as being of one mind. It's like a miracle in and of itself. (laughs) And they're not just sitting there, they're praying, right? And this wasn't like a short time of prayer. Like this is a persevering type of prayer that lasts days. So why did they pray like this? John Stott, in his commentary on Acts, uh, explains this. He says, There can be little doubt that the grounds of this unity and perseverance in prayer were the command and promise of Jesus. He had promised to send them the Spirit soon. He had commanded them to wait for him to come and then begin their witness. We learn, therefore, that God's promises do not render prayer superfluous. On the contrary... It is only his promises which give us warrant to pray and the confidence that he will hear and answer. So this unity that the 120 disciples experienced as they persevered in prayer, waiting for power, um, that is the heart of what I want us to explore this morning. So first, they were united in being obedient to wait. Jesus told them in the first part of the chapter uh, to stay in Jerusalem. Tense he could have been um, in those early exciting days, right, to jump ahead of what Jesus had told him to do, right, to take the show on the road, right, and not wait. Things were exciting. They'd seen a lot. Um, they'd been taught a lot. And now they wanted to go and tell and what they have seen, what they've heard, right? But Jesus said, stay. He said, Wait. And so we see that they were obedient in doing what Jesus told them to do. Wait. Some of us struggle when Jesus says go. Um, Others of us struggle when he says wait. I can relate to that. Here's a personal story uh, related to that. Um, In October 2018... Um, The church I was serving, a church of about 3,000 at the time, uh, went through the fall of its senior pastor. Um, I was one of three executive pastors. We had about 20 pastors on staff. Um, And we discovered on a Thursday um, that our senior pastor had addiction issues and had had a moral failure. So in the spirit of being fully transparent with the congregation, um, we decided that in lieu of a sermon um, that that Sunday, that the three of us and a member of our board um, would announce this to the church, like that Sunday. Um, This showed up in the Kansas City Star. It made the national news. Uh, It even made international news. 
um, I think it was in Charisma, it was Christian Post, I mean, it was, it was all over the place, probably because we were one of the largest vineyard churches in the nation. Um, and several times we had been listed uh, in Outreach Magazine, like every year they list like the top 100 fastest growing churches in the nation, we had been listed on that list uh, several times. And now everything was crumbling. Um, my workload at this time significantly increased. Um, I was having hundreds of conversations with people, um, trying to answer their questions, trying to shepherd them, trying to pastor them. There were a lot of tears. And at the time, I prayed, God, <laughs> should I stay or should I go? Um, and his voice was clear. God told me, stay, they need you right now. So being obedient to God uh, doesn't mean that it'll be easy, right? My stress level went through the roof. Um, I was working ridiculously long hours. It wasn't until the fall of 2020, like two years later, um, that I sensed the Lord giving me permission to begin, um, the phrase that came to me was uh, casting seed into the wind. Um, and so that fall, uh, I felt the Lord's release to begin putting my resume out there. An interesting observation. Had I not waited... If I started putting my resume out there in fall of 2018, I would not be here today. Sometimes the Lord says, wait. It doesn't mean it'll be easy, but it's best to listen to him, right? Uh, second, second thing we can learn from this scripture is they were united in prayer. They were united in prayer. So it says they all met together and were constantly united in prayer. So here we see uh, 120 followers of Jesus continually pouring out their hearts to the Lord. Jesus ascended on the 40th day, um, and the Holy Spirit came on the 50th day at Pentecost. So, so they were doing this for 10 straight days. And, and when they were looking to replace Judas, right, they prayed. Uh, Acts 1.24 says, then they all prayed, O Lord, you know every heart. Show us which of these men you have chosen. So they covered even that very important leadership decision with prayer. So I don't think there's a church out there uh, that wouldn't say that prayer is important. Uh, but I would say that I've seen churches come up with plans on their own and then pray that God would bless those plans. And I've been privileged to be a part uh, of churches that do the opposite. They spend a lot of time praying together to discern where the Lord is leading. Like, um, what is he wanting? Jesus said, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. John 5, 19. So the difference is asking ourselves, where is the Lord leading? Where is he already moving? How can we come alongside 
where the Spirit is already working. And the cool thing is, like when the Lord speaks to several of us around the same time, and we just get this confirmation, like this is where he's leading. This is what he wants us to do. Um, That is vastly different than just coming up with plans on our own and asking for God to bless them. But in order to do that, um, it means we're united in prayer. Um, we're, we're seeking God's will. We're seeking his direction, his guidance, and his power. Um, we're setting aside our agendas, and we're seeking the Lord's direction, and we're seeking his confirmation. Um, we're allowing him to speak to each of us, right, through his word, through prayer, through the community of believers, right? Sometimes he speaks to us in dreams. It's biblical, He's spoken to me in dreams. I've, other believers, I've seen him speak to them in dreams. He speaks through, many times, through the circumstances of life. People have asked me, uh, what led you guys to come to Fergus Falls, of all places? And the, 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 the way I typically answer that is, um, well, in the natural realm, Uh, I would probably have liked to go someplace warmer, Uh, but in the spirit, all signs were pointing to uh, Life Church in Fergus Falls. And it was God speaking through prayers, speaking through scripture, um, through conversations with people, um, through circumstances um, that we knew this is where we were to come. So he even spoke... This is interesting. He even spoke through a documentary I watched on Right Now Media. Right Now Media is this like service we uh, subscribe to as a church, sort of like the Netflix, but a Bible studies kind of thing. Uh, this documentary is called Godspeed. Godspeed. Um, it tells the story of a young American pastor uh, discovering a new way of doing ministry in a rural setting in Scotland. Um, This pastor is mentored by Eugene Peterson and N.T. Wright. Like, I'd love to be mentored by those guys. That'd be awesome. Uh, And he discovers what God's speed is. It's the speed at which Jesus walked the earth, about three miles an hour. Uh, It's a way of doing ministry that's slower It's more relational. It requires way more vulnerability because it requires you to both know and be known. Um, So prior to that, to watching that documentary, I never ever would have applied for a ministry position in a rural setting. Like never. And so after I watched that, I knew God was telling me, um, you're going to be serving in a smaller, more rural setting, um, and it's going to grow you because it's going to force you to know and be known intimately, right? In a big church, it's real easy to not be known. Um, But you know this better than I do. You know, in a small town where everybody knows everybody, 
Um, that's a lot harder. <laughs> that was one of my biggest fears coming here. I'm like, oh, they're going to know everything about me, you know. But you trust the Lord, right? Um, so I actually, when I sensed that, when I sensed the Lord saying that, I contacted the larger churches that I was interviewing at, and I withdrew my name. Um, one was a five to 6,000 person church in Cincinnati. Uh, one was like a 2,000 person church in California. There were several others. But I knew, I knew, I knew that I knew that I knew God was saying, shut those doors. So being a church that is united in prayer uh, and that is seeking the Spirit's leading is critical. Because oftentimes, God leads us, like where God leads us is never where we would have chosen to go on our own. Okay, so third, um, they were united as they stayed together physically. Like they're all together in this room, 120 of them. Um, you know, they, spent, they were spending a lot of time together. They were, they were definitely deeply involved and invested in each other's lives. Um, I'm not suggesting that we start a commune, uh, but we do need to practice a certain level of togetherness in order to remain a connected body. So one of my callings, uh, one of the callings of my family and I um, that we've had over the years is that we've had several people move in and live with us. It probably goes back to when I was a kid. Uh, we often, when I was growing up, had people come and live with us for months at a time, uh, usually homeless people. That's a story for another time. But at any given time, I'd say between age when I was six and 19, when I moved out, somewhere between one and five homeless people would be living with us at any given time. Um, so when Jackie and I were first together, um, one, of the, like, one of the first people that we did this with was my sister who lived in Florida at the time. Um, she was having a rough time and so we offered to like have her move in with us and get a fresh start. Um, so Jackie and I drove from Champaign, Illinois down to central Florida where she was living, uh, got her and brought her back with us. Um, at the time she was in recovery she started going to college, community college, started getting her life back on track. Um, that's where she, she met her husband. Um, it was when she was in recovery there in Champaign. Um, and now both of them are over 20 years sober. Um, she ended up getting her, her bachelor's degree in criminology. Uh, and he is an accounting professor at UND. Cool God story. Right? We've had others uh, over our lives move in with us. Um, our friend Daniel, uh, our friend Cheryl and Matt, her husband Matt, uh, my nephew Adam. My mom lived with us for the 10 months she was on hospice before she went to be with the Lord. And currently my mother-in-law is living with us. 
Um, so one of those, when our, when our friend uh, Cheryl and her husband Matt were living with us, we had a 900-square-foot home. It's two-bedroom, one-bath. Um, Aiden was like three or four at the time. Um, he got one bedroom, and we gave the other bedroom to Matt and Cheryl. I slept on the couch, and Jackie slept on the air mattress next to me. Like, that, that was our living situation. So we had one bathroom, and Aiden, like I said, was like three or four at the time. So the rule was, uh, if he has to go, it doesn't matter what you're doing in the bathroom, you get out. Right? Because he can't hold it. Right? So when you're, my, here's my point. Like, maybe that's too much detail. Sometimes I give too much detail. <laughs> but here's my point. Uh, when you are living with people, they start to see the real you. Like the real you, right? And you have to talk about things that you wouldn't normally talk about. For instance, like, we had to talk through, like, okay, this night of the week, we'll stay out <laughs> until such and such time. And this other night of the week, you'll do the same, if you get my drift. Right? There is a certain intimacy, um, certain unity that's created when we're physically together. What does it look like? It's a question Christians have asked themselves since the early church. What does it look like to do life together with other Christians? To let them see you even when you're not at your best. So a couple weeks ago, um, when my back went awry, and if, you, if you're new here, two weeks ago, um, I, I was not physically here for Palm Sunday because um, my back went out. Um, so they filmed me and showed, showed the thing on the screen. Um, but uh, I was in a lot of pain that morning, and Jackie took me to the ER, like that morning, Sunday, and uh, one of our elders, Dave Fournier, uh, came to visit uh, us in the ER. So while he was in there, the nurse comes in uh, to give me a Valium shot in my hip. And uh, actually the top part of my butt. And uh, Dave asked me, he said, oh, I asked, I asked him when he came in this morning if I could share this. He said he was fine with it. So um, he asked me if I, if I wanted him to leave. And I was like, no, it's okay. You don't have to go. And then they gave me the shot. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure he looked away, but <laughs> that's what Christian community looks like, right? It requires us to be vulnerable. It requires us to be transparent, right? Here's my authentic self. Here's my injury. Here's my butt, right? He says he looked away. <laughs> okay. So fourth, uh, these 120 disciples, when they're gathered in the upper room waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit, um, they were united in purpose and mission. Right? That purpose and mission is what I taught on last week. Right? Acts 1.8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And it's the Great Commission, right? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, right? These last things that Jesus said before he left 
the earth pretty important. Like that, this mission was given by Christ and it remains the mission of the church today. So the disciples were uh, united in waiting. They were united in prayer. Um, they were all together in one place and they were united in purpose and mission. Uh, this picture of the formation of the early church, uh, it points to a simplicity, an authenticity, an intimacy of community, a dependence on the Holy Spirit, and a unity of purpose and mission, right? That stands in stark contrast to the way many churches operate today. I'll put it this way. These followers of Jesus understood the enormous difference between going to church and being the church. Because materialism is so much a part of American culture, uh, people tend to view church through this lens. Meaning the church ends up becoming yet something else to consume. Uh, Does it meet my needs and the needs of my family? Uh, Does it have a good youth group? Does it have a good children's ministry? Uh, Are there small groups? Are there discipleship classes? Uh, How's the worship? Is the pastor a good preacher? All of these questions are normal. I'm not saying we shouldn't ask these questions. But I will say this. The church is not a building. The church is not the pastors and staff who work in the building. The church is not the programs that are housed in the building. The book of Acts says that Christ purchased the church with his own blood. Christ didn't purchase buildings. So we don't just go to church. We are the church. Right? And here's the amazing, beautiful thing about the church. Jesus started the church with imperfect people, and it continues on today with imperfect people. This should make us marvel at God's incredible grace. That God would use ordinary, broken human beings as vessels of his grace and delight in it is amazing. Um, He is proud of how his grace is overcoming our imperfect but redeemed lives, both individually and collectively as a church. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 says, God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. So the idea that He would use me and you. It's pretty amazing. Like, he didn't have to do that. Um, He could have bypassed the creation of the church and spoken to the world directly. But instead, he chose to use broken people to showcase his grace to a world that is in need of redemption. Of course, it's messy, right? People sin, leaders aren't perfect, neither are pastors. The church's story, as twisted as it gets sometimes, is a beautiful story of God's grace. It's a story of his power 
It's a story of his kingdom mission to reconcile the lost, the last, and the least and bring them back into a relationship with God. Right? So are our lives. Um, we're probably more indebted to the church than we realize. Like, if you're hearing this message and you have any amount of faith in Jesus, like, might I suggest that your faith is actually a result of the mission of the church. Like, very few people come to know Jesus because he just appeared to them supernaturally, like when they were alone, and called them by name. Does that happen? It does, occasionally, but not the most. Almost all of us who follow Jesus Christ have had our lives changed because of a flawed, imperfect body called the church that Jesus passionately loves and he calls his own. And that's what we accomplish when we go from going to church to being the church, right? When we're united in prayer, when we're united in the dependency on the Holy Spirit, when we're united in an authentic community, like with one another, when we're united in purpose and we're united in mission, then we're ready to be the church, empowered by the Spirit, and then go be witnesses to a world who, apart from Jesus Christ, has no hope. Let's pray. Lord, my prayer this morning is that here at Life Church, we would be united. United in our obedience to you, united in dependency on your spirit, united in just doing life together authentically, and united in fulfilling our mission as your church to be empowered by your spirit to be a witness to the world. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you use imperfect, flawed people like us to be your church. And thank you that not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. Lord, this is your church. Give us eyes to see where you're moving, where you're leading, so we never wander off and just do our own thing. Jesus, I pray for each person here. Continue to birth stories of healing, life transformation. Continue to move in power. So like that story of the Chinese farmer, we are witnesses of the miraculous to a world who needs to see it. I pray that in Jesus' name.